0: Cornell, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yourself? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. So um, you know, we've just recently met because of, you know, aligned work in, in the mental health field. But, you know, you work more with children and young adults. Well, no, children, right? Children and teens mainly in your work. And I'm usually on the adult side. So it's so exciting to meet somebody who's doing work on the children's side. So yeah, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the work that you do?
1: Okay, so um, our, our work isn't directly with the kids, but everything we do is all about the kids. Um, so uh, my organization is a California Alliance of Child and Family Services. That's our membership organization. We have 157 plus members all throughout the state of California and different uh, mental health and behavioral health services so we're talking about. Uh, foster family agencies, uh, short-term residential treatment programs, things like that. And then we have a catalyst side where my focus is more on the catalyst side of things, and we use that to take the work that we do for our members and with our members and broadcast that out to the public because we want to make sure that anything that touches families and kids, and that's just about everything, (laughs) uh, we want to have our hands and help help, uh, the marginalized communities.
0: So how did you even get into this work?
1: uh interesting so i was um i was an attorney before this graduated law school i mean right probably halfway through law school i realized i didn't want to be a lawyer long term uh i know expensive route to kind of figure that out but that's what happened and i knew it would be a stepping stone and so as i was practicing i was always looking at other opportunities a lot of my side projects were always community-based i helped a group of teachers organize a charter school i helped a friend of mine Started a nonprofit that's still getting up and running that focused on giving young people with social workers professional experience and development. And then I'm always just looking because I was working for Liberty Mutual at the time, defending insurance companies, great company, but defending insurance companies isn't, you know, like the heartwarming stuff. And so
0: Oh, wait, what are you kidding, I, right? You're kidding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, so I, I was looking uh, and I saw this opportunity um, and I submitted my resume. I showed my wife the job and she said, that's that's you. Like the, everything that they say, that's what you want to do. And I didn't have necessarily the experience, but I met with Chris, the CEO. We connected. I met with the team. She kind of came back and said, you know, the experience, you know, is, is questionable. And I pretty much said, you have to give me this job. I showed her the books that I was reading. I showed her all the homework that I was doing. I said, I'm, I'm ready for this job. And then uh, met the rest of the team. And then here I am one year later.
0: Wow. Wow. That is, well, first of all, that's persistence. And I love that you did that in a job interview. Like, no, you must give me this job. You shall give me this job. Uh, <laughs> did you like? do a lawyer thing in the middle of that. No, I'm just kidding. I know you did it, but um, well, number one, I'm so glad that, you know, you're, you found what your passion is, right. And that you aligned what you wanted to do, not so much what you were trained to do, but what your heart said, yeah, I have to do this. And this is how I'm going to do the work. And you found something that's a good fit. So what kind of work are you personally doing at Catalyst Center um, in your role there? Well, I, at, at CACF.
1: Really, I'm as the director of strategic initiatives, I'm kind of overseeing the broad direction and where where the Catalyst Center side of things is fairly new. So the Alliance has been around for about 25 years. The Catalyst has just been up and running in its current form and probably about the last two years, something by the current CEO, when she came over kind of sparked a little fire under. And so um, we provide training, technical assistance to providers who are on the ground doing this type of work. We wanna make sure that they have the best tools Uh, They're culturally competent, they're trauma-informed, and and help them understand that, you know, they need to be trauma-informed with themselves because this type of work can burn you out. And so Mm. we've done work under the ACES AWARE initiative, which is Adverse Child Experiences, and making sure that we understand how that affects kids and their health Mm. and their mental health. We're piloting a Youth First project where we are taking what used to be a one-size-fits-all model, like group home-type mentality, And really saying okay we need to look at the individual child and give them the services that they need and the love that they need as opposed to trying to fit them in to these boxes because then you got them bouncing Mm. around from facility to facility you know they're too difficult no they just haven't been given the proper love and proper care
0: wow and that must feel very fulfilling and very satisfying i'm hoping any frustrations around oh my gosh the system is just a giant mess <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> there is some frustration um and there is, it is a learning curve mind you, i was attorney before this this is a whole new world to me um i had some personal experience my mother was in the fall system but the technical language and things like that is brand new so at times uh, i told my boss like before when i was at liberty mutual i was tired at the end of the day or any law firm. i'm tired and just dreading the next day here i'm tired probably more tired than i was before but I'm looking forward to the next day to learning. And like, we have an impact, we have a role and it can be frustrating, but I'm in the door. I have an opportunity here.
0: And you said that your your mom was, um, had experiences in the foster care system. Did, did that um, impact your desire to, do you think somewhere there to do this kind of work?
1: Without a doubt, Karis, without a doubt. Um, my mm. mom is my inspiration. Mm. Uh, she had be she was 19, uh, you know, we grew up together. The fact that she got me here to where I am today, despite not having any kind of you know, foundational support or upbringing, against all statistics, and odds just urged me to pay it forward and um and, and help the mom my moms of the world. You know, could imagine if she would have had a, a program like Youth First in her childhood, where she could be, how far along she could be.
0: Wow wow sure, that, <laughs> large Yeah, no doubt <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly she must be very very proud yeah so um what what does youth first do? Like, you know some of these programs I'm not too familiar with I am from the education side when I worked in um, higher education a long time ago but what are some of the like programs and exactly what do they do and especially I think and again not to discount that this can ha- not happen to any parent and child, but for children of color, can you talk a little bit about some of the um, equity issues that we also want to make sure we're addressing?
1: Definitely, definitely. Um so youth first, the pilot program, uh, we are we're working with about 15 providers in five counties throughout California uh, to really help them develop and maintain individualized programs for an individualized youth because each youth you have some similarities across the board, but every child is their own child. And so really looking at the services and the needs that that particular youth has and how to surround them with the right supports and services to get them in the stable position so they can go to a lower level of care. They can be reunited with family or just, you know, go on and thrive instead of just surviving. And so we are piloting that the big component, a few big components. One is a research and evaluation piece. We want to track the data, make sure that we are looking at the right things to, de- to determine, is this working? We, we we're pretty sure it's gonna work, but we need to be able to tell the story so we can go to the legislators and go to the state and say, hey, these types of projects work. Let's make it easier to fund this. Let's make it easier for providers to pay for this so we can do this on a widespread um, basis instead of you know just these pilot programs. Also incorporating lived expertise. And only through that experience can you really say, what's effective, what's not effective or what could be. And so we want to make sure we have those voices heard, which goes to incorporating people of color because, you know, black and brown people, our folks are way overrepresented uh, in the foster system, way overrepresented, mm-hmm. you know, reports of neglect and things like that. And so we want to uplift those voices and give them a seat at the table to really determine how best to get out of this. We'll call it a crisis because that's what it is.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's really cool that, and so critically important to include people who have been through the systems and through these the experiences to inform what went well, what didn't go well, what could we be doing better and what other systems, because it's not one system, it's many systems that need to be involved to make lives better for you know families. We're so glad that you're doing this work. And um, what do you think so far <laughs> is your, what is your favorite part of it? Like you say, you come home, you're tired, but it's like, oh, I'm ready for the next day. So something is really driving you and there's a fun part of it or, you know, exciting part of it for you too.
1: I think, I mean, the exciting part is just being in these conversations and having a real opportunity to make change. Uh, You know, I've talked about change and I've talked about doing things and other side projects I've had opportunities to quote unquote make change, but working at uh you know the alliance and the catalyst center i have an opportunity to make systemic change like where we have the ear you of know, the legislators. we're talking we're working on projects with the department of social services and the department of healthcare services um we're talking in conversation with the office of the surgeon general and being mm-hmm. able to really have a say in those moments and really uplift the voices of people who come from the background that i come from is, is i i couldn't appreciate it more
0: Wow. I'm almost speechless, which is so rare, but I am am a little speechless because it is one of those things that, you know, sometimes we lose hope, you know, that, you know, things might not get better or we don't see people that look like us, you know, we don't see black males. We don't see black females. We don't see Latinos or other, you know, folks of color at the leadership level you know, doing some of the work. And I think it becomes, you know, you become the evidence for other people, you become the, I don't like to use the word inspiration, that feels like inspiration porn, kind of, oh, I'm not into that. But but certainly, I think it, it uh they say, I'm the evidence that you're the evidence of, oh, look, see what can happen and what one can do and what one can aspire to do. So I think that's really, really, really important. I mean, do you ever get to um, work directly with the kids? Or is it more kind of at that policy administrative level?
1: More at the policy administrative level, um, I will say that as part of this Youth First project, I'm kind of uh, spearheading the lived expertise portion of it. And with that, we want we don't want just people, you know, there's some people who have lived expertise and they've been doing this work for 20 years. But we want people who maybe are currently in the system, in the foster system, oh. or who are just in the false system, who have a, a fresh perspective. So... That'll give me an opportunity to work with the kids a little more closely there. Also, I want we wanna travel around, right now we're in the Zoom world, but once we're up and running, I wanna go check out the different facilities and check out the different programs and, and talk with the youth and talk with the families to see um, hands-on with my own eyes how these uh, programs are working and how they're uh, uh, coming to fruition
0: how are you seeing, um, as you're sort of going through this learning process yourself in a new position or, and also a new field, where are you seeing major gaps in like silos of the system and things like that, that, you know, are going to take a little bit longer or more, I don't want to say more advocacy, cause we do a lot of advocacy, but kind of, you know, where are you seeing things that it's like, dagged, if we could just fix this, that would really make a huge difference.
1: Oh man. Uh everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> um, that. Really you 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 hit it right in the head these silos. That's the issue is that no one systematic change, no one system is going to fix these problems. You you can't help children and families unless you're talking about it all. Education, criminal justice system, juvenile justice system, mental health, behavioral health, physical health, all of those things combined. And in California we're starting to see some of those things start to blend together. We are working on this community schools movement where we're trying to put resources in the schools and having cross-sector trainings and cross-sector dialogue. Now, we're we doing it the best way possible. Uh, that's, we'll see. But I think we're more innovative than other places. And, and those conversations are starting to be had and starting to realize, hey, education, I can't do this on my own. My kid, My kids aren't performing well. It's not just an education issue. What's going on at home? Are they eating right? What's up with their physical health, their mental health? Are they getting all the services that they need to really thrive? Um, mm-hmm. uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite poems. I I'm a butcher, but it's, um, because I don't have a pencil or something like that, where he it, it goes through, you know, all the issues that are going at home and then you get to school and the teacher's fussing because you don't have a pencil. Uh, and, and (laughs) I can, I can relate to that.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. I think that was so um, that you just brought that up. You reminded me of, um, what I always had to say about the black Panther party and people said, Oh, that's so radical. And, you know, they killed people and, you know, those sorts of things. And it's like, okay, well, let's step back a second here. Do you have kids who go to school or are they in a school lunch program? Well, that was really started by the Black Panthers. And why was it started by the Black Panthers? It wasn't just for Black kids, it was for all kids, all kids, especially kids who are poor. Now at the time, you know, most of the poor kids were Black and Chicano and, you know, uh, in the Oakland area. And they were noticing that the kids couldn't do the work at school. Kind of like, well, you don't have a pencil. You can't keep up with your homework. Well, yeah, I'm hungry. I haven't had breakfast. You know, I haven't had lunch. I don't have any, you know, the kids don't, the kids didn't have um, nourishment to be able to participate in school. And so that's how actually the school lunch program started for the nation. And I think it's so important to remember those things and how you're talking about, you know, even still today. How are you bringing those community folks in and the teachers in and the education system in to address the whole child in the context in which that that child lives so that they can um, thrive in school and flourish? And so you you also talked a little bit about um, two things. you said trauma informed care, not just for how people are working with the, the the kids and the families, but also how staff are taking care of themselves. so what is what is that? Mean. I mean, you know, we use terms like trauma informed care, but then, like, what does that mean and what does that look like, especially in the work setting for the worker, for the for the staff?
1: Yeah, what what that means is still, you know, somewhat of a work in progress. But mainly, it's having the conversation. It's it's being open and and employers being open to having this dialogue and understanding that we are human, we are people. I could have a great life and not have any trauma that I've gone through, but then constantly seeing people I care about and re-traumatizing and re- traumatize that could take a toll on me as well it, it does mm-hmm. take a toll on me and so be so able to take a step back and and breathe and at least recognize it and address it is, is the first key step and then it's more about you know do we do we need to have more counsel do we need to have more listening sessions do we need to have de escalation sections to kind of unwind and and get our minds back into and our hearts back into a place where we can be the best that we can be for the people that we want to serve.
0: Yeah. I always say it's kind of hard to, uh, everybody says, well, put your oxygen mask on before you help somebody else. You know how that saying is when you're on a plane, that the idea is you can't help somebody else if you pass out. So you have to have your oxygen mask on first before you help somebody else like a child or somebody who's not able to do that for themselves. And I used to use that analogy, but I thought, you know, if I'm putting my oxygen mask on at that point, something's already gone wrong. The plane is going down, the oxygen levels have fallen, like we're in crisis mode and I'm trying to figure out, put my, so, so I like to say, you know, um, make sure that the, your cup is full um, and sometimes overflowing because it doesn't take much to empty our cups, you know, and then how do we kind of monitor, you know, where's the level of my giving and also that giving being either revisiting trauma or causing trauma because it's constantly kind of like working with people who may be struggling and you want to take care of yourself right because you, you got to be present for the person that you're you're helping
1: you're right i always thought that was my saying put your asking the mask on first but we don't want to put we don't want the plane to be crashing let's
0: uh let's yeah. fill
1: ourselves up before that
0: point, I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I was reading that. I was using that analogy, you know, at, at a at a presentation while I was getting ready to. And my my uh, panelist or, or co presenter was telling me, oh, I don't know if I like the oxygen mask analogy, and I was like oh man, I was going to write that airline company and get a bunch of os- oxygen masks to kind of like really illustrate what happens. And, and and they were like, well, the plane is already crashing at that point. Do you think that's, I was like, you know what? Stop talking. Enough said. I got it. I got it. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I'll use a different analogy. So yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people, I think, talk about sort of, you know, filling your cup, making sure your cup is full. And I, I think of it as overflowing because it take it doesn't take long for that cup to like, go down, I'm just like, keep it overflowing, keep it overflowing, Um, which that overflowing is also part of my self-care. What am I doing to keep it overflowing? There's self-care embedded in there. There's checking in um, on how I'm doing and how I'm reacting to all of the things that are really tough to deal with. But I think in our work, and you can tell me if you've seen this, we see people who are flourishing because of the work that we're doing. And that can also be kind of like nourishment. Or do you find that um, in your work, even you know, as you're doing your work?
1: Yeah, definitely. When we, when we see some of the policies that we supported and enacted and actually have the effect that we desire them to, that doesn't always happen. Policy in on the ground, sometimes very different, but we're an opportunity at the Alliance where we can see, okay, we effectuate policy, our members are implemented on the ground. It's not exactly the way it was supposed to be. And then we can go back and say, we need to readdress this policy. And, and so seeing that process and seeing it help definitely, definitely uh, is cup filling. And so I'm curious, because uh, you know, I, I look to you as, as as a mentor. So I'm wondering, talking about self-care, talk about self-care sometimes and it's just like basic necessities. And I think it's a little bit more than that. What, what are some of the things that you kind of yeah. do for self-care?
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I I'm learning to say no, <laughs> no, not gonna happen. Um, <laughs> I say it much more politely than that, but but I'm learning to say, oh, I can't do that right now, or can we can we can we push that out, you know, for another week. I'm fortunate I can do something like take a day trip to the beach. I love to swim. I love the water. I don't like the beach. Um, <laughs> that sounds so odd. But what I'm finding about the beach is. I love the sound of the water. I love watching watching the waves, watching the people. It's just super duper relaxing and sometimes I'll take my laptop and you know I'll work at the beach, but it has a different feel. So it's things like that where it's like sometimes I just need to be in a different environment. The other thing I like to do is take pictures. Um, and every people have heard me talk about this is to use my uh, mobile phone, take pictures of, puppies, my dog, anybody's dog, <laughs> flowers. And and I like looking at like, you know, fallen leaves on the sidewalk. To me, there's something about a fallen leaf on the sidewalk. It's like, ooh, that's the cycle of life or something. I don't know. So I have lots of pictures of fallen leaves and flowers on the sidewalk, but I'll put them in different folders. And I use those folders for, uh, if I'm feeling um, sad, let's say, I like to look at the puppy pictures and there, there are cats in there too for the cat people, they're cats in there. So they're, <laughs> they're kittens and cats and basically pets. And I'll look at those when I'm not feeling like, I just feel like oh, I can't, I can't take it or I'm sad or I'm you know really feeling down. Um, and then other times, if I'm like anxious, I do like to look at the the flower pictures or the leaf pictures. So yeah, I do a couple different things. What, what do you do?
1: I like that. I like, honestly, I've been I haven't been very good at it lately. Work's picked up. Um, and I love my work, but it, it has definitely, sometimes at the end of the day, I'm just like, huh, But um, I, I play some video games. I don't know if that's the healthiest self-care, but I just kind of, I, I go through my binges sometimes. I, my yeah. Xbox will sit there for months, and then every day for a week, I have to work. I'm like, and my, and my wife is lovely. She's like, no, please, go play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go play. Mm-hmm. I I do also do love the beach. Um, I actually just took a trip to Mexico with my brother-in-law, like, mm. kind of like you. I don't necessarily like walking on the beach, but I love the sound of the ocean. I'm trying to convince my wife to move to San Diego, so I can just drive by the beach. You know, on yeah. a daily basis. Yeah. Back into playing basketball. I love playing basketball. That allows me to get out some frustration sometimes. So I have a very mm-hmm. competitive nature, too, so I can channel it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I just started counseling. I just mm-hmm. started a team counselor think I think, two sessions so far, and it's been interesting. Mm-hmm. Most the time, I tell myself, well, I'm fine. I'm fine. But I've been telling myself that my whole life. And so I know I have an ACE score of like nine, maybe 10. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It needs to be addressed. And so too, it's interesting. But um, it's, it's been good so far.
0: So that's, I'm so glad you said that because I think, again, this is, you know, Black men in therapy, Black men in therapy. Let's just, you know, let's just talk about men in therapy. No offense (laughs) to the men. I'm just saying y'all know what the statistics are, but, you know, so I think when we can talk openly about going into counseling and being able to, you know, I think a lot of us and a lot of people say, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, being able to have somebody else to talk through stuff with. That's that's sort of the role of a a counselor. It's not about I'm going to label you with a mental health condition or, you know, say that you've had all this, you know, trauma, which may or may not be the case, but at least it's a, I I like to think of them as an impartial person that I can kind of dump my stuff on, (laughs) right? And um, so having that space to go and kind of unpack, are you finding that it's, starting to have i mean you've had two sessions so.
1: yeah yeah but you're, you're right the first session was very kind of feeling it out but then towards the end of that session i felt more comfortable he, my, my particular therapist spoke my language he didn't try to be all super buttoned up but you know it was more of a cordial kind of like we're talking right now and, and, mm-hmm. and we cared some about his story so it was more of a back and forth so by the second session i, I was ready <laughs> and you're right oh, wow. like things that you can't you you probably may be able to say or you may have to like tailor it when you're talking to other people it's just pure honesty this is what's on my mind let's talk about that wow (laughs) Uh, wow
0: yeah yeah i love the way you you're kind of expressing how this is and i hope um you know especially for anybody who's hesitant to think about accessing therapy or a counselor that they're understanding a little bit about what does that look like? Like we've opened the green curtain. (laughs) This is not a TV show. This is a podcast or real people. (laughs) So uh, we're talking about what it's, what it's like to be in in therapy that it's uh, you know, sometimes for me, it was a little bit scary. Sometimes I would go and actually um, sometimes I would go and I wouldn't talk at all. And I thought I would be in trouble for not talking quite frankly, because it was, therapy, quote unquote, and I wasn't talking, um, but I I had learned from my therapist that sometimes you just need to sit in silence and you need somebody to sit in silence with you. And he never prodded me. He never pushed me. He never said, well, you're supposed to be talking or tick tock, tick tock. You're wasting your money. He said, no, maybe this is just what you needed just to sit in silence. And I was like, all righty then that's cool. Like that maybe that yes. is exactly what I needed, you know. So uh, and nobody could have taught me that. I couldn't have read that in a in a brochure about this is therapy. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So what are your what are some of your hopes and dreams as far as your your newfound career that is your passion? Like where do you see yourself going in the next couple of years?
1: I have so many hopes and dreams. I mean, my my wife, I have lots of passions. One of them is education. And not just having better science and math in school, but really what the community school movement is about, is about teaching people how to be their best Mm. selves. I also have my MBA. And when I was going through the MBA program, I couldn't help the entire time. I'm thinking, why is this a graduate level program? Why is cooperation and learning to work with people of other cultures and learning to uh, foster creativity. Why is this a graduate level program? This is, should be taught in elementary school or throughout school, how to work with people, how to uh, take different thoughts and different perspectives and put them together to get the best product, especially here in America. I mean, that's that's what we're all about, right? That's mm-hmm. <laughs> We say we're all about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah well, you're speaking to another MBA or so uh, yeah, snap, snap, clap clap exactly right. <laughs> you know and an MBA or who went straight into working in education after getting their MBA. So um, yeah, and it was sort of I realized how much I was able to actually utilize what I got from business school, not not from a buttoned up kind of financial business, person perspective, but much more about the humanistic part of business that you learn about, like building teams and kind of working with people and understanding different people and why you need different people on a team. And, you know, all of those things kind of, um, you know, fell into the work that I was doing in education. So for all of those folks interested in MBA, they really are valuable, just in case you wanted to know. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, they're really, I think they're really valuable for the nonprofit sector, quite frankly. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, yes. You know, when we think about uh, you know our 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 black boys, our our black young men, what are some things that we need to pay particular attention to? Do you think to ensure that I mean there's a level in me that says there's there's protection? You know, what can we do to protect our black young men and also, you know, what can we do to help them flourish in a society where right now um, it's tough, you know, and what are, we, what are we doing for, you know, the young, the young folk here?
1: I think the biggest thing we can do for them is, is to give them love because I made the mistake and I'm still learning and growing. We, my wife and I had it, my, my nephew for about five years between the age of four and nine. And the first couple of years I was hard on him, and I was hard on him because the world's going to be hard on him. And I'm like you need to toughen up now because the world's gonna beat you down, and so I'd rather you get it here and be ready for it. When really I should have been loving him and letting him be who he is and, and letting him be carefree. Uh, I, I sometimes I see these white kids just going out doing whatever they want, and I'm just like, oh, it must be nice. But then they have they come out the other end, they're confident. They you know they're they, they're emboldened. Mm. I realize am I like almost like suffocating that out of? my little man, because I'm trying so hard to prepare him for this tough world. I'm failing to really love him and let him be who he is and thrive. And there's, I think there's a fine balance to, to uh, achieving that. And I'm not saying I found that yeah. balance, but I started to. Towards the end I started to just be more, hey, you know what? You can get in a little trouble. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like
0: the word little trouble. A little, a little trouble.
1: Little trouble. <laughs> and, so, and so love it. And that's, that's it. it. And letting them be they are.
0: Yeah. And I think that is the perfect place for us to wrap up around giving more love. We all need it. So thank you so much for joining me, Cornell, on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. So glad we were able to have this conversation.
1: Thank you. It was an honor being here. And I look forward to listening to more of your podcast and working with you on other things. I know your hands are full and so on definitely uh, be a part of and partner with you.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And just for our listeners, remember to join in next week and thanks for listening this week. Thanks much.